You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit tvcresources.net. Good morning, church. My name is Jeff Hamm, and I have the privilege of serving alongside my family in NextGen Ministries. Our passage today is in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeff. Thought we'd start with a cheery verse. Well, hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us both here and at home. My name is Mason King, and um, I'm one of the elders here. I also oversee the Institute, leadership, and home groups. So we just read Isaiah 6, but we're going to be in Matthew 13. Surprise, because that's where the parables are. So if you would turn to Matthew 13, you can join me there. Now, in looking at the parables of Jesus, we're talking about the primary way that Christ chose to teach about the kingdom of God. And parables are tricky things. They're comparisons, stories, and similes used to disrupt our thinking and inviting us to reconsider reality. Some of us might get them confused with fables, where uh, animals talk, and tortoises or turtles beat rabbits in races. And you think, okay, I learned a lesson. That's a fable. Animals don't really talk. It's not a parable. You with me? All right, so others have treated Christ's parables as allegories, which means that they have gone in and made uh, significance to every word and every detail and every color and everything, and they've written it all down and come out with something akin to Pilgrim's Progress or the Chronicles of Narnia, and we don't want to do that either. Allegories are great, but the parables are prophetic instruments. They are tools in the hands of God's messengers, and in Jesus' hands, they are tools to say, You need to see reality from God's point of view. Now, when we look for an allegory or a platitude, it's like we walk up to the parable, we figure out the difficult thing, we make it plain, we grab it, and we pull it up. I I did this earlier, and the only thing I think of was a mandrake from Harry Potter. So (laughs) it's like you find the parable, and you pull it up, and you've got the truth, and you're going to hold on to it and carry it around, because that's that's the point of the parable, right? Like you all know the Good Samaritan, you all know the story of the prodigal son, and you feel good about getting the point because you've got it and you can apply it anywhere out of context because that's what we do. You and I are so prone to read the text for us and for now. We, don't, we rarely think, what does it mean, or for me and for now, we rarely think, what does it mean for us and for always, let alone to think, what about for them and for them? Now, if you've been in a TVCI Bible study, you're hearing this and you're like, you're speaking my language, let's go. Because this is how we want to see the text. Because as we've said before here, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. And so addressing the parables means we have to take some time. Now, when you look at Isaiah 6 and you read that and you're like, okay, well, again, it's Matthew. So I need to catch you up with some backstory. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. I just thought we might get in a helicopter together and fly over the Old Testament and say four minutes. You want to do that? All right, let's do it. So 
You're familiar with the story of Israel. God chooses a people, delivers them, provides for them, binds them to himself in love. And they respond with gratitude. No, disobedience. (laughs) Doubt. And they chase pagan gods. God delivers them again, and they turn away. God delivers them again. They turn away. You, You catch the cycle, right, throughout the Old Testament. And God gives, God gives Israel some choice real estate. They wanted a king. They got a bad one. They got a good one. They got David. And so there's this point in the history of God's people where God's people are in God's city and God's man is on the throne. And then God's presence is physically dwelling in the temple among his people. There's this point in history. Now, if you are one of the people of God at that point in history, you sit around and you're like, These are the good old days. Like, kingdom come. This is what it is. But then the cycle starts again. Sin, invasion, rebellion. The Israelites are sent into exile and the temple is destroyed. And all of this, God continually invites his people to live and surrender to his good design for identity, purpose, belonging. And they respond and say, no, I think we can do it on our own. Like, I think we know better. And in their rebellion, their hearts grow dull, their ears turn weak, and their eyes close to the truth. And then at a certain point, the Israelites come back from exile, and they rebuild the temple. And the text tells you that the young men are like, we did it! Hooray! And the guys who had been there before, the grayheads, the older men, the text says, you can hear their wails of tears because they know that God's presence is not there like it was before. And then God makes a new promise. He says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to give you this king, and I'm also going to write my law on your hearts. You won't have to say, hey, go know someone, because you will know me. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So the people wait for 400 years. And then, in time, in the bloodline of the king of Israel, a boy is born to a virgin. Meaning that in all of history since the Garden of Eden, one human has entered the world free from the stain of sin, all his faculties unaffected by and free from the power of sin. Like us, but not like us. Because he is the second member of the Trinity who humbled himself, put on flesh, and came to fulfill the promises of God. He is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus spends the bulk of his life outside of our sight from the text. Like there's just a large period of time. We don't know what he's doing. He lives it obeying the commands of God without fail. He does what none of us can do. He fulfills the law, which if anything, God's law is his way of reminding us of our creatureliness, of our dependence upon God, that he is God and we are not. And when it's time, friends, when it's time, Jesus steps out of obscurity and into the fray. And Christ begins to work miracles, forgive sins, and declare the kingdom of God is at hand. But he looks nothing like what the experts expected, right? He looks nothing like what the experts expected. He's not following their script. There's uh, one author talks about like this just when he's looking at the gospel of Mark. He says, to sum it up, therefore, by the end of chapter three, guys, three chapters, all right? By the end of chapter three, Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. 
The scribes are sure he's possessed by Beelzebub, and Jesus' patience is already beginning to wear thin. The Satan talk, he insists, is sheer nonsense. His real family consists of anybody who does the will of God, and those he say he has an evil spirit are themselves guilty of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. This author goes on to say, Jesus has already established himself not only as a wonder-working, demon-exercising claimant to the messianic title, but also as a Sabbath-breaking upstart with a dangerously arrogant sense of his own authority. As somebody, in other words, who is neither interested in nor palatable to the religious sensibilities of expert Messiah watchers. Now, Jesus dealt with people who had little tolerance for their perceptions to be challenged. Their Messiah was going to bring the coming kingdom by overthrowing those people who oppressed the people of God, like the Romans. If you needed a clear emotional picture of who they were looking for to show up, just picture William Wallace with his long hair, (laughs) blue paint on his face. That's who they wanted. They expected God's warrior king to set things right and free his people. And then Jesus sits down next to sinners and double dips in the hummus. Okay, you're with me. There you are. All right, there you are. He heals sick hearts and lame legs, all the while saying, the kingdom of God is here. Where the experts looked for a ruling king, here's this blue-collar carpenter with an interest in philosophy, claiming he knows what the kingdom of God is like. This can't be right. Like his very way of being and his attitude towards the things of God don't fit the mold. They thought it's like he's got it all backwards. He can't be who he says that he is. But there's Jesus. Healing, teaching, embracing, and hanging out with the wrong crowd. Loving them and letting them believe that he is who he says that he is. That he is who they hope that he is. You see, Jesus told parables as an invitation to see God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as he is, not as we perceive him to be. In Matthew, he's surrounded by such a crowd which, friends, was full of seekers, disciples, enemies, and skeptics. He's surrounded by such a crowd that he's sitting in a boat on the water. Like, there's so many people. He had to get in a boat in the water, push out a little bit, and then just project into an amphitheater. Just really pretty remarkable if you think about it. And he's out there and he tells the parable of the sower, which is first in all the gospels where it appears. It is first in the batting order of the parables. It is the parable about parables. And it is given pride of place. It's the first one that Jesus sets out with. So let's pick up in Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. As great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, The sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. 
He who has ears, let him hear. So imagine you show up at the beach. You hear this. And you're like, got it, good. Right? Like you read the parable and you're thinking, what? The parables are simple in detail, common in image, and indirect in the message. They are meant to make you stop and think. Kierkegaard says they are meant to deceive you into truth. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That guy just feels trapped at the end. Like he's got nowhere to go. So let's look at what we see. The sower sows liberally. I mean, seed is going everywhere, right? Like on the path, on the rocks, on the weeds and the thorns, and out into the good soil. He's just, it's just going, okay? Some of it gets stolen before it plants itself. Two of them grow before they fail. The third grows in good soil and bears fruit, and it bears fruit 160, 30-fold. Different measures of fruit within the good soil. So let's look here in verse 10. The disciples did what I would do. I don't know about you. I would walk up and go, hey, I'd like the inside scoop on this. So they walk up and say, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one, for the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So you remember when we got in that helicopter and we went across the Old Testament? We talked about how at a certain point, God continually invites his people to live and surrender to his good design for identity, purpose, and belonging. And what do they do? They rebel. And they say, I've got this. And in their rebellion, their hearts grow dull, their ears turn weak, and their eyes close to truth. And Jesus knows our hearts, and he knew there were people in the crowd that day who would hear without hearing and see without seeing, because Jesus knew then, just as he knows now, that the way we perceive God determines how we receive him. That the way we perceive God determines how we receive him. You see, Jesus quotes Isaiah with intentional irony. This irony is meant to stir the hearer to not be counted among those with dull hearts, weak ears, and closed eyes. It's a word of warning. Judgment is coming. Some will respond towards life, and others will harden themselves towards death. And the Isaiah passage helps us understand who Jesus refers to when he says them and there. So in Matthew... He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is how Mark cites Jesus and Isaiah. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
So people often read this and think the disciples are inside and everybody else is outside. Anybody? Like, if I'm a disciple, that's what I'm thinking. Like, I'm with you. I'm in your crew. Well, if you think about this and if you read the Gospels, the majority of the crowd that's listening to Jesus, they're giving up a lot to hear what he has to say. Like, they're missing meals for a chance to be healed. They are close to the kingdom of heaven. They want to hear what Jesus says. They're not the ones on the outside. So who is it? One scholar writes, the expression, those outside, does not refer to the crowds in general, some predetermined group, but to people like Jesus' family and the religious leaders who are not ready to hear and do the will of the Father. It is the stance of willingness to hear and obey that determines whether one is outside or inside. It is the stance of willingness to hear and obey that determines whether one is outside or inside. So in studying this and in thinking upon the parables, guys, I feel at times that I listen a whole lot, but if you look at the obedience of my life, I hear a little. How about you? Let's look at verse 12. I'll kind of paraphrase as we go through. For, the one, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. So this is to the one who can receive God's kingdom on God's terms, they will see him clearly. But from the one who has not, the one who can't get past their own perceptions of God, even what he has will be taken away. They will choose their own ends over God's reality. So speaking in parables uh, isn't some trick or backhanded way to make understanding God difficult. It's just not. They, the parables, like I've said, are invitations to reconsider reality, but some people refuse the invitation because it costs too much to admit that our perceptions might be wrong. We don't want to think that we've bet our lives and our decisions on our interpretations and perceptions. So you might remember the, the, uh, the illustration of the gazelle that shrinks its heart. So many of us have built our perceptions of life with God because other people have failed us, other people have hurt us, other people have disappointed us. We've taken all that and projected it on God. Right. And we live out of that perception and learn to expect little and little from him. Because we think that faith like a child is just too naive. We know what life is really like. But Christ invites us to come like a child. Jesus is saying, if you let me shape your perception of the kingdom, your expectations of life will change forever. All right, so let's go. Verse 16. Speaking to the disciples, Jesus says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So I, I think it's fine to say that there's plenty of evidence from across the Gospels that the disciples sometimes didn't have a clue about what they heard and saw. Right? Like, they nod because they don't want to be called on. They're like, ask him. Like, I get it. Ask him. And, I mean, you don't do that? I do that. But only later to realize they finally get it. And what Jesus is saying to them is, 
You're blessed because you are seeing and hearing the fulfillment of Israel's longing. Generations of the faithful long to see God fulfill his promises by sending the Messiah in the coming kingdom. And disciples have seen it and will see it in abundance. So in looking at this parable and really in the, in the um, reaction to Christ throughout the Gospels, I think there's two postures of heart that I want to talk about today. One is the posture of perception. And the other is a posture of reception. How we perceive God will shape what we expect of Him. If we have the wrong perception about who God is, it will over time harden, deafen, and blind us to His reality, which, friends, is the only reality there is. That's it. You and I know this truth in daily life. There's this old saying that familiarity breeds neglect. But I've heard it said that presumed familiarity leads to unfamiliarity. And unfamiliarity leads to contempt. And contempt leads to profound ignorance. Presumed familiarity leads to unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity leads to contempt. And contempt leads to profound ignorance. Now, the expert Messiah watchers, they presumed familiarity with God's ways, and they did not recognize Jesus. Their unfamiliarity birthed contempt, which brought actions of profound ignorance in an effort to protect their perception of God's reality. And there are numerous accounts of people throughout the Scriptures having, uh, their, having plugged their ears or having trouble hearing rightly of God's truth being hidden from the wise, but being made known to infants. I mean, how sobering is that? Like, Jesus' own family didn't believe him. Do you not think that around the dinner table, Mary let the birth story slip once or twice? Like his siblings knew that he was different, right? But what happens when he begins to teach, when he begins to heal? They come after him and say, he's lost his mind. Let's go get him. So how does Jesus respond when someone says, hey, they're outside, they've come to get you? That's right before this in Matthew 12. He says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus invites us. Let go of your perceptions. Receive the message of the kingdom and see what true life is all about. So the postures... It helps me with visuals. So if we think about reception and perception, maybe there's, some, some, there's a heart posture, but maybe it's also a, a posture for your hands. So when I think about my perception of God, if I begin to think that God is not who he says he is, that he cannot be trusted, that it's on me and that my shame defines who I am, and so I have to keep going because if he's not good for me and he's not good to me and he's not kind and he can't be trusted, then I am without hope. And I need him. And this, friends, is exhausting. I'm just, I'm done. It's exhausting. Some of you were nervous for me right there. I'm going to tell you, I went to A&M, so talking and doing that, like that's, you're asking a lot before lunch. So um, if we, if we let our perceptions spin us up, we're going off the hurts of our past, the fears of the future, we're going off how other people have disappointed us and what we expect of God as we've shrunken our expectations of who he really is. But then there's that second posture of receiving 
I can do this all day. Like this right here. To believe that God is who he says that he is. And what he says about you is true. That he is good for you and good to you. And he's kind. And he can be trusted. If I hear him, if I receive with faith what he's saying, and if I act like a child, I have to be willing to admit that I've been wrong and be open-handed. I have to at some point be displeasing to myself in order to listen clearly to who he is. So Jesus explains the parable of the sower in verse 18. I mean, you, you catch this in all three of the Gospels where it is, it's in three, three sections. It's the parable of the sower, and then it's like, hey, help a brother out. What does that mean? And he says, hey, you're blessed. They're struggling. And then he's like, okay, I'll tell you what it means. And so in this section, he says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy that he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and in another, sixty, and in another, thirty. Let's just look at this for a second. I mean, like, parable of parables, and Jesus takes the time to walk through it. He who hears the word doesn't understand it, does not see, and the evil one comes and snatches it away, sown on the hard ground of the path. Sown on the rocky ground, the one who hears the word, receives it with joy, but has no root in himself. He endures for a while, but when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he falls away. Among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You think about Jesus and the other parables we'll get to where he's trying to communicate the beauty of the kingdom of God, the uh, priceless nature of what he proclaims and offers. And here he says, this is the one who hears the word before the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. They choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And there's this, the one sown on good soil, one who hears the word and understands it. He bears fruit and yields in different measures, 100, 60, 30 different people bear fruit that looks different in the soil. And these four soils cover every kind of person in every season of life. Like there's no cracks here. This is all of us. 
And the invitation is to live with a posture of receiving God's word in Christ, to hear and obey. So if we're looking at how Matthew presents the parable, he's making the point that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this parable points to receiving the truth of the kingdom of God. That to be a disciple of the kingdom means hearing and remaining focused on the message of the kingdom in such a way that one is defined by it. To be a disciple of the kingdom means hearing and remaining focused on the message of the kingdom in such a way that one is defined by it. The key to spiritual formation is the willingness to listen, the practice of the discipline of listening and responding appropriately to the received word. I want you to take a moment and consider your life right now. So when I made those two hand motions earlier, which one felt most true to you? Which one do you want to be true? How can you and I receive the word if we can't sit still enough to listen? How can you and I become the kind of person who hears clearly and responds quickly to God's voice in our lives if we have made it noisy at every turn? How much of your life is too noisy to hear clearly? Like how much of your life just feels like anxiety? It's too noisy to hear clearly and you're just hoping it all kind of works out in the end. You just keep going. We all make choices, and every single choice has a consequence, good or bad. So what I tell my kids, too many of us welcome noise when we should stalk silence. Entering the kingdom is difficult work. Some say it's kind of like a camel going through the eye of a needle. You'll get to that one later, maybe in a different week. Okay, all right, you'll get it later. Just, just nod along right now, and then it'll come. I want to note that the first soil gets stolen. The first seed in the soil gets stolen. The next two were at different stages of growth when the seed fails. Each person heard the word. It was sown. And each person failed to remain focused on the kingdom until they were defined by it. Those first three. They heard the word. The word was sown. The word fell. The word was received. And each of them failed to bear fruit that would show that they were defined by the message of the kingdom of God. And that last soil, the one who hears and understands, or if you want to get Hebraic about it, obeys. Because understand is to obey. That's the one that flourishes. And so we hear this echoed in the epistles. This is 1 Timothy But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We hear it in James. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, 
He will be blessed in his doing. And here's 2 Peter. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, these voices and this parable invite us to become the kind of person who is able to hear and respond to God's invitation to life in Christ for all of life. Having ears to hear leads to living in the kingdom Christ proclaimed, brought to us and will be fully realized at his coming. Now, we've said for years here that God is not waiting for a future version of you to love. If you're outside of Christ, you can hear the word of Christ and respond. No penance to pay, no need to, no need to punish yourself. Just be willing to believe that Jesus is good for you, Jesus is good to you, and Jesus is kind. And God's not waiting for a future version of you to love, and he has a future version of you in mind. Jesus wants you to hear, understand, and respond. But my honest fear, my honest fear is that you and I are too busy, too distracted, too comfortable, too resourced, too informed, too self-reliant, and too unsuspectingly unfamiliar with the person of Christ to hear and keep hearing to desire, let alone cultivate, a life that can bear fruit a hundred, sixty, or thirtyfold. In a real sense, the posture of our heart and our hands will predict if we have ears to hear Jesus' invitation to life on a daily basis. A follower of Jesus continually surrenders all of life to God's good design for identity, belonging, and purpose. It's not a one and done, get your stamp and move on. It's a continual surrender to God's good design. It's a life of union with Christ, pursuing the joy of holiness above all else. Some of us have bailed on holiness because we didn't think it was great. We never got to it. Some of us were just distracted and wanted comfort. Holiness is what we're called to. And so I'll tell you, friend, like you want to sleep well at night? Like you want to hit the pillow and not be anxious about how things are going to go? You want to look at yourself in the mirror and be proud of who's there? You want to have a conscience that doesn't condemn yourself? You and I need to fight to hear the gospel every day and live to it. We need to believe it, preach it to ourselves and to each other, and delight in Jesus. We need it. So in April, I shared a quote with you that has haunted me for years. I keep a file of things I kind of go back to, and this one always just punches me in the face. I'm sharing it again because I need to hear it, and I think you might too. Responding to the reality of the kingdom is discipline unto joy. 
And the birds, thorns, thistles, and heat of life are going to try and convince you otherwise. So here's the quote. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards what? Compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. So I just want to ask you this morning, are you hearing and responding to Jesus on a daily basis? Where has your heart grown hard, your hearing weak, or your eyes dull? I tell you, friend, there's no time like the present to trust that God is who he says that he is. And what he says about you is true because all your sins, all your guilt, all your shame, all your anxiety, self-reliance, fear, doubt, anger, grief, you can bring them all to Jesus right now. And he will treat you with gentleness. He will not shame you because he is good for you and to you and he's kind. So whether for the first time ever in your life or the 10th time this weekend, you can come to Jesus. You can come to him. So I'll close with this. In 2013, I, uh, Carly and I joined a team of five to go open the Fort Worth campus of the Village Church. You guys remember when we were a multi-site church? Yeah, me too. Okay. Okay, just checking. Um, in the days leading up to things, we renovated this old church building and a few days before we, lead the car- we laid the carpet, I took a Sharpie and I, I went to my office and I opened the door and there was just bare concrete. We laid carpet a couple days later. We're here before. I get, the, I get the Sharpie and I wrote this quote down. Right, I mean, it's probably still there under that carpet because I knew I wanted this to be how I began every day. It was kind of like a Rubicon for me to cross. I had to make a choice that I was going to walk and step into this. Here's the quote. Relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus. You've sowed Christ into the world and you've allowed us to respond. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be good soil. Oh, I ask God that you would give us hearts of good soil, that we would respond and bear fruit, that we would live in such a way that we would be defined by the message of the kingdom of God and by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Would you help us where our hearts have grown hard, our ears weak, our eyes dull? Would you wake us up? Would you allow us to delight in Jesus and see him as beautiful, more worthy of our time and attention and affection than all the things that promise ease and comfort and distraction? We need you, Lord. You are better. We pray in Christ's name, amen.